Welcome to KidTech, the podcast series that interviews the people and influencers in the kids' digital media space. I'm Dylan Collins, CEO of Super Awesome, and today I'm in Washington, D.C., and very, very pleased to be here with FTC Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter. Welcome, Commissioner. Thank you so much for having me, Dylan. Um, Commissioner, a lot of our listeners will be familiar with COPPA, with the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act, but I suspect maybe not all of them really kind of understand what does the FTC do, right? So maybe kind of at a high level, could you explain what the FTC does and, and what you do within that? Sure, happily. And uh, before I start, I will uh, give the caveat that I am supposed to give that I am here speaking for myself and not for the FTC generally or for any of the other commissioners of the agency. So as you mentioned, I am one of the commissioners on the Federal Trade Commission. It is an independent federal agency that is run by five commissioners, three usually from the party of the president, two from the minority party. I'm one of the minority commissioners right now. Um, and the agency is a, a little, we like to think a little powerhouse with a very, very broad mandate. Uh, it's a little over 100 years old, and it has two primary missions. The first is in consumer protection, mm. and the second is in competition. So the agency enforces primarily the Federal Trade Commission Act, which protect, prohibits unfair and deceptive acts and practices and unfair methods of competition. So that's our consumer protection side and our antitrust side. We are also, as the law has evolved, we have become the nation's primary and dominant privacy enforcer mm. through our competition, uh, through our consumer protection mission. So unfair and deceptive acts and practices um, as those acts and practices have evolved in the marketplace, they have evolved to include a lot of privacy violations or mm. other data abuses. Mm. And so we enforce against those. And we enforce some specific laws, including COPPA. Mm. So COPPA hands enforcement directly to the FTC, which means that we investigate violations of COPPA and pursue those violations either in settlement or in court if necessary. Excuse me and seek fines, civil monetary penalties hmm. uh, for violators of the law. We also are responsible for doing rulemaking under COPPA. So some of the terms in the statute require a little more elucidation hmm. and a little bit more explanation. And so the agency periodically promulgates rules to help keep the law updated with facts on the ground. And then the third thing that we have the power to do that I think is important for us to do is we have the power to conduct market studies, market-wide studies about mm. how um, different markets are functioning. And mm. so one area where this could be relevant in the COPPA context is a study either on kids' privacy or I'm sort of more interested in ad tech generally, mm. how it relates to kids specifically, but how mm. the ad tech markets, which I think are the backbone mm -hmm. of all of the uh, what consumers experience as privacy questions operate. Right. And, I mean, we, we, we were talking just before we went on air about sort of how five or six years ago COPPA was seen as a pretty obscure law. I think it's fair to say, right? It wasn't, it wasn't mainstream. If you said it to people, you know, they probably didn't know what you were talking about. I mean, I think in the last 24 months, you know, children's digital privacy has become a very mainstream topic. I think a huge amount of people know what COPPA is at this point. Um, 
How does that feel for you? I mean, it's, it, it, it must represent sort of something of kind of a, a general victory or a general kind of awareness victory. Yeah, well, it feels both incredibly exciting to be at the FTC at this moment when privacy issues generally and kids' privacy issues specifically really are at the forefront of people's minds. It also feels like an enormous responsibility that I mm. take very seriously. I think the reason people know more about COPPA and are reacting to it is because of how markets have evolved and how technology has evolved. COPPA is 20 years old. Mm. Um, the kinds of digital interactions and technological experiences that children were having 20 years ago are light years different from right. what they are seeing, experiencing, doing today. Mm. And so the general increase in public awareness, I think, is responsive to the changes in the marketplace. And we at the agency have to be responsive to that and, if possible, stay ahead of it mm. and ahead of the curve. Because when enforcement is playing catch-up continuously, it means we run the risk of problems getting entrenched mm. and becoming more difficult to solve. Mm -hmm. And how, I mean, how effective do you think COPPA has been? I mean, for, from I suppose from our perspective and from the industry's perspective, you know, we've always seen COPPA as being the gold standard in terms of kids' digital privacy law. It was really the, the, the by far sort of the the, um, the the leader in establishing what the benchmarks should be. Um, and obviously sort of it's, it's in the process of evolving, you know, at the moment. Uh, I mean, how effective do you feel it's been over the last few years? So I think it's fair to say that the folks who drafted and passed COPPA were really visionary in mm, some ways mm. and that they were able to anticipate ahead of the technology right. where it was going. Because it was plus originally in 1998, mm -hmm. right, right? which was really, I mean, as you say, light years ago in terms yeah. of I think everybody thinking. was on AOL. Yeah, then. right, right. <laughs> I mean, if the kids were on the internet, it was through right, AOL. right. right. Probably with a dial-up connection. I mean, there must have been like less than one percent of the internet audience was probably even kids at that time. Yeah, I, tiny, right? I think that's probably. I mean, I don't know yeah. the statistics, right. but that sounds yeah. right to me. Whereas yeah. today, you know, my two-year-old will try to swipe at a television right. because she right. knows you swipe at something to open it. It's a very different universe. Um, so, so I think there's a lot to be said about the benefits of COPPA, and some of the most, the most um, clear benefits from my perspective are. First of all, that it exists, that it is a right. specific concrete law with detailed instructions to the agency and standards for industry to think about hmm. and create compliance. I think the clear, unambiguous requirement of verified parental consent is really helpful from both a compliance and an enforcement perspective. Mm -hmm. People know what's expected mm. and they know when they've gotten it wrong for the most part. Right. Um, that's really helpful. I think having the rulemaking, specific rulemaking authority is helpful because mm. as a general matter under the FTC Act, on the consumer protection side, the FTC can't do general rulemaking like many of our sister agencies can mm. uh, using the Administrative Procedures Act, but we can with our specific COPPA rules. So mm -hmm. that is valuable. Mm. I also think the fact that paired with the rulemaking are monetary penalties for violating the rule which is really useful from a deterrence perspective. One of my takeaways from watching GDPR be implemented is that money matters. Mm. You saw global efforts at compliance with GDPR. Whether those efforts were successful or not, right. it sort of remains to be seen. But at least the vast majority of companies tried to get into compliance with GDPR, were mm. aware that it was coming, mm. tried to get into compliance with it, Sure, in part because maybe they were good 
citizens, but also because they knew that 4% penalty was hanging out there in the background, and nobody wanted to be exposed to that. Mm. So knowing that money is on the line can really count. And again, under the FTC Act generally, we can't get monetary penalties for first-time offenses, but we can under COPPA. So I think that's really valuable. Um, and, And like I said, having the rulemaking authority that allows us to keep the law up to date with evolving technology. That's all really good. Um, I think there are some things about COPPA that, you know, some gaps that it leaves that I might want to see improved that maybe couldn't have been anticipated at the time. So COPPA was designed to put parents in the driver's seat. That was the goal. And I think that that's a really laudable goal as a parent Mm, and as an enforcer. But I think that that should be sort of a floor rather than a ceiling of mm-hmm. requirement. Mm-hmm. And I worry in the kids space, as I worry in all of the data spaces, about the entirety of the burden being on the consumer mm-hmm. to control how data is used when it's very difficult to understand mm-hmm. how data is collected and used and shared and transferred. And parents are already quite overburdened. Mm-hmm. And so when you add the additional burden onto them, I think that that is hard if the burden lies exclusively with them. And then I also worry, um, sorry, I know I'm going on a little bit, but I want to make this one final point, which is that I also worry that just uh, requiring opt-in consent for the collection of data doesn't necessarily address all of the concerns we might have about how data is used not only about children, but also targeted how information is targeted to children on the internet mm. and the content to which they might be exposed. So COPPA is not a content regulation statute. Mm. And I think we can't try to shoehorn, or we should be aware that it's difficult to shoehorn into COPPA specifically all of the kinds of downstream privacy harms that might flow to children. I have so many follow-on questions Great. for that. <laughs> I'm happy to answer um, them. Let's, let's just go back to your, your point about sort of the, the burden on parents from, mm-hmm. a, from a responsibility. Because I, I think it's, it's, you know, the difference between now and, and, and 1998 and even 2012, you know, is, is quite considerable. Um, where do you feel the responsibility lies, I suppose, on, on major technology companies? As, as in, technology is clearly not a substitute for parenting, right? right? Of course. But in terms of of sort of, we have bigger technology companies that own a lot of these consumer-facing um, platforms more so than ever before. Like that point around sort of the burden of responsibility to parents, what role should, if any, does, does let's call it big tech have in sort of trying to assist with that? So I tend to think that with great power comes great responsibility, and the companies that we're talking about do have great power, right. and I want to see them meet it by taking, meet their responsibility by taking great care about how children are treated and protected mm. when they access their platforms. One of the advantages the FTC has as an enforcement agency here is that we think about things not only from a data protection and consumer protection lens, but also from a competition lens. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot about not only uh, what recourse do parents or children have if they don't like how data is being treated by a particular company, but what are their options in terms of other choices? What does the competitive Mm -hmm. landscape of the marketplace look like? Mm -hmm. Can I say, um, I don't want to use, I don't want my kid to use this service because I worry that it collects too much data or targets Mm -hmm. bad information to them. 
so I will switch to an alternative service. Mm. That's that's the universe we want to live in, where right, there's healthy right, right. competition on quality, you know, not just price, um, but on quality metrics too. And privacy can be a quality metric. Mm. So I think we have to think about some of those mm. questions. Um, but going back to the responsibility, I look, companies have an obligation to comply with the law. That's a bare minimum right. that they have to do. I also want to see companies taking responsibility sometimes to do more than that and to treat the ecosystems that they are cultivating with um, care, not just for those ecosystems, but for all of the people who use them mm. and grow from them. Mm. I get really worried when I read stories about, you know, um, self-harm and mm. children mm. sort of content that wouldn't be COPPA covered at all because it's directed at teens a little bit, but... There are very disturbing statistics about increase in suicide and depression mm. among children um, that if they're not, they're at least correlative, if not causative, with the increase right. in social media usage. And so I think those are things that um, everybody should be taking really seriously. I mean, this is sort of an opinion of mine, um, but I'm curious what you think, uh, you know, given sort of the the, the huge usage by sort of kids and teens of all of these services which were not necessarily originally designed for them you know do you think in the future it makes sense for a lot of these companies to have something like a chief children's officer sort of as, as part of their org structure because what, what you see in a lot of these companies right is that responsibility for thinking around children tends to be distributed right across a lot of a lot of members of the team i mean, I mean do you think if you, you fly i mean I've, I've got a question about the future sort of later on sort of you know, five, ten years time, do you do you think something like that is, is much more normal in, in a lot of major tech companies? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I think a lot of companies didn't have chief privacy officers not too long ago, and now most of them do. Right. So I, I don't know that I'm the best positioned person to opine on how any specific company or companies generally should organize themselves. But I do think the idea of making a person high up in the leadership structure mm. have authority over an issue shows that you're taking the issue seriously. Right. And so, and can help ensure cross company compliance and cross company um, harmony and harmonization, mm. particularly with companies that have a lot of different suites of products mm. and a lot of different kinds of operations that, that strikes me again, not as the inside organizational expert, but as a good way to show to send a message internally and externally that you're taking the issue seriously and indeed to take it seriously. Right. Um, one of the the reasons for the current COPPA review is is really to sort of be able to reflect a lot of the new media, new technologies that are that, that are in effect at the moment. And, you know, things again, going back to things that didn't exist in, in twenty twelve and certainly in, in, in ninety-eight. Um, like streaming and, and you know different types of games and virtual worlds and connected devices. Um, where where are you most concerned in terms of kids' privacy at the moment? In terms of you know some of the newer developments over the last sort of two, three, four years. So I think the things that we have to look at is so I have a couple areas of concerns. Mm. There are some specific technologies, connected to IoT devices, connected mm. devices, um, are an area of concerned a concern for me. I'm really concerned about targeting of not just advertising, but also information to children, which mm. is sort of downstream from 
the privacy questions. The whole point of collecting right. data about users is to then turn around and be able to target information to them. Mm. Um, and I worry about targeted advertising and native advertising to children because mm. I worry that they don't have the same ability to discern advertisement right. from non-sponsored content that adults have. And just on that point, do you, do you sort of expand that into... I suppose algorithmically driven content feeds as well. Do you mm-hmm. see that as a yes? I think, and I think looking at how um, algorithms are making decisions and what kinds of um, either maybe sometimes that's with problematic inputs or problematic mm-hmm. outputs. Right. Uh, I right. think there's not a lot of transparency around those things, and that's stuff that I that I would really like to see. Um, not all of these are things that could be within the scope of a COPPA rule. So I'm just try- I'm kind of right, trying right. to be responsive to yeah, the big yeah. picture question about what are areas of my concern. My, one of my biggest concerns is that we know that we fully understand what's going on. So while we may specifically know what um, new technologies kids are using, hmm. and I don't know that we do, but we may have some awareness of that, I still think there is a lot of opacity in the um data backbone and data infrastructure, mm. particularly as it affects kids. And so one of my high priorities is making sure that any decisions that we make are really informed by data and by facts on the ground rather mm. than assumptions about how things work. In the kids space and in the advertising space in particular, I hear all the time assertions about the relative value of targeted versus contextual advertising mm. and um, the the sort of cost differential. And I haven't seen any data to support that. I've seen anecdata, data, mm-hmm. but not any sort of widespread data. I don't think we have good information about not just first order data collection, but where that data flows, how it is shared, because you know, data, it's it's not pa- It's not like a house key that gets passed from one person to another person to another person. Right. It multiplies and duplicates and can be shared. And so you can lose control of it very mm. easily. And so that's an area of concern for me. And do you think there is a future version of COPPA that in some kind of conceptual sense expands liability from, you know, fundamentally the publishers to the owners or the deliverers of the ad creative. When you think about exactly what you described, right, in terms of that data leakage, um, you know, today there's there's a big distinction between the publishers and and how that ad gets delivered onto a page. And the publishers typically don't control that entire ad delivery stack and where the ad creative comes from. I suppose how do you how do you think about about that because the the ad tech ecosystem is complex. Yeah, so I think there are two sides of it that are complex. One is what the ecosystem is, and the second is what the law is. Right. And so we don't have unlimited flexibility mm. in our rulemaking. Mm. Um, we can gather data, we can make assessments, but we are governed by the limitations of what the statute allows us to do. Mm. And COPPA doesn't allow us in some ways to get at some of the issues mm. that I'm talking at, um, talking about right now. So I think these are the kinds of questions that are really important for us to look at in detail, both in terms of the facts of what is happening mm. and what the scope of the law permits. And then we have the ability to say, here's what we can do under the law. Right. Here's what we can do with our current enforcement. 
Uh, here's where we can't do things. And if Congress thinks it's important for us to take a different approach, we should, or if we think it is important for Congress to give us the ability to take a different approach, that's something we should articulate clearly uh, and directly. Hmm. We've seen um, several new sort of um, privacy bills and acts that are being proposed lately. And it, 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 it would appear, and I suppose I say this cautiously, to be a topic that seems to have reasonable bipartisan support. Is that yeah, I think that's right. I mean, yeah. I before I came to the commission, I worked on the Hill for about a decade, so I right. have some um, some basis for judging, and mostly a basis to say it is impossible to predict at any point, <laughs> and particularly right now, what will happen. Right. But I do think the necessary conditions for federal privacy legislation are in place. Yeah, um, there's industry interest where there usually isn't a lot of industry interest mm. in federal regulation because um, there's concern about different and incompatible laws popping up in all mm. of the different states. Mm. And then there's interest from advocacy groups and consumer groups who want to see more teeth in our federal enforcers, mm. um, which I also want to see. Right. So that's good. Those are all good, mm. important, necessary conditions. Whether they're sufficient remains to be seen. Right. Um, but all of the... Um, but but the commission is looking seriously at all of the particular proposals. Yeah. I'm looking seriously at them and trying to point out where I think there are really good ideas that yeah. help advance the debate and move the ball forward. And I am encouraged by the bipartisan nature of the conversations. Yeah. And and just I mean reading through sort of the um, the Privacy Act, which was um, Representative Castor's um, proposal, one of the things that that she was including was was a, a structure for private right of action. Um, which we see under GDPR and GDPRK in Europe, do you think that is a helpful thing to have with with, with a with a privacy law like this? And also, given the limitations of the FTC's resources as well. Right. So, in a universe where the alternatives are um, underfunded federal and state enforcers having all of the enforcement responsibility, mm. and versus individuals who may be in the best position to understand when harms have happened right. and to pursue their vindication, it certainly makes sense to me that you want to empower more people to protect themselves. Mm. Um, so I have a lot of sympathy for that argument. Uh, I also think I have I understand the argument that you don't want to create just lawsuit factories for the sake of extracting settlements, right. but I don't think that that is a necessary component of a private right of action. And certainly I don't take particularly seriously any arguments that a private right of action shouldn't be included unless they are accompanied by dramatically increased resourcing for federal and state authorities to enforce a law. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you say, oh, we can't have a private right of action because it'll be too expensive, but we also don't want to make sure that the right. federal enforcers have the resources to do enforcement. What you're actually saying is we want a law without its enforcement. Mm -hmm. And so that, I have a really hard time with that argument. Right, right. Um, you've probably um, seen a lot of what's going on in the UK with the age-appropriate design code. Yes. Um, which is, I, I mean, it, it feels in many ways like, I suppose, the, the spiritual successor of, of COPPA, or the most recent version yeah. of COPPA. Um, and we could probably almost do a separate episode entirely on that, right? And, and, and the evolution of law from digital privacy into, into UX. Um, 
have a couple of questions on that. What one is, I suppose, generally, you know, are there are there any elements of that 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 you would that you see as being sort of interesting and valuable for Coppa in the future? Well, the thing that really leaps out at me is Coppa deals with content that is directed towards children. Mm. Um, or where the content creators have actual knowledge that children are using it. Um, we hear complaints all the time that directed towards children is a very difficult standard to enforce. How right. do I know right, right. if my general audience site is directed towards children? Mm. I don't know. You know, maybe it's a um, My Little Pony fan site for bronies and not really for, I'm not intending it for kids. It's not directed right. towards kids, but it has lots of kid features. So we hear a lot of questions about compliance on this child-directed standard. The standard in the age-appropriate design code is likely to be accessed by children. That is not mm. difficult to comply with because basically everything is likely to be accessed by children. Right. Um, so I find that a very fascinating move and one that I like to point out to the people who complain to me about mm. how vague child-directed is because um, – if your concern is compliance, there's an easy solution, right. which is just right. more bro be more broadly inclusive. So I think I also think the likely to be access gets around the very difficult questions of age gating, right. which I think we've seen seems like a good idea in practice, but doesn't work. Yeah. So I'm really interested to see how that plays out in terms of compliance and what it means for companies and content creators that operate globally, you mm -hmm. know, who don't have jurisdictionally gated sites right. and content. Do they implement likely to be accessed protections globally? So I mm. I think it's too early to tell about a lot of it, but I'm following it with an enormous amount of interest. And like everything else, all well thought out, well designed, carefully crafted and debated laws and regulations are going to operate in practice differently than was necessarily anticipated. Mm. We see that with GDPR. We're going to mm. see with CCPA. Mm. So while I don't like that the U.S. is sort of lagging behind and updating its privacy laws, I do think we have the opportunity to learn from the natural experiments of different kinds of standards and different kinds of policies being implemented in other jurisdictions mm. and seeing what benefit and cost they have. I'll give you another example on GDPR. Uh, GDPR has made me get pretty much over opt-in consent as as a mechanism, all of the pop-ups that we saw after GDPR went into effect about accepting cookies, I think have done almost nothing to protect people's data, mm. created a lot of friction, and created a lot of user fatigue, mm -hmm. click-through fatigue, where people right, just click right. to move on. And that, so it almost has a counterproductive mm. effect. It's a really good idea. But when you see how things work in practice, you have to think again about whether they're achieving the goal that you want. So, um, and sometimes they achieve more and do it better than you had expected and in ways you hadn't anticipated. So mm -hmm. I'm really looking forward to following all of this closely and talking to our counterparts mm -hmm. in the UK about what they're seeing and experiencing. I mean, do you think you mentioned age gates? Um, I mean, and, and I suppose sort of the the structure on, you know, whether you know kids could be expected to be interested in a piece of content is essentially sort of the, the corollary of an age gate. It's kind of one or the other. right? Yeah. I mean, do you think age gates fundamentally go away as, as a quasi-legal construct, um, you know, in the U.S. over the next five years? Do you think that happens with, with, with Kafka? Well, I don't, I mean, I don't think we see a ton of age gates 
right now, well, which I is mean, the they, old school age gates. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they clearly people don't just work, lie. Right? Incenti- like, in, incentivize lying, right? Right. They yeah. incentivize lying and, in fact, maybe make content more attractive than right. it might otherwise have been to children exactly. um, who are not historically known for wanting to avoid things that are age inappropriate. So um, I don't I don't put a lot of faith in age gates as a path forward. And I haven't seen evidence that the market is moving more towards them rather than away from them. Mm. Um, But again, and and so I think that the likely to be accessed question is is an interesting workaround to that problem. And whether it's the only one that we see, maybe not. Mm. Or maybe age gating becomes more feasible or more effective with technological evolution where you're not just asking someone to input his age, but you actually have some reasonable verification method yeah, yeah. Right. uh i think that remains to be seen do, i mean do you feel that fundamentally we just need we as an industry need more investment into kid tech because it's been an area that, that that silicon valley in general sort of has has ignored or deprioritized or whatever over the years for, for lots of different reasons yeah i i want to be careful when i say investment into kid tech because i i would say i think we need more investment into responsible kid tech mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is a lot of investment into technology-enabled products that are directed at children. Right, right. Um, but when I talk about sort of enabling infrastructure and enabling technologies, you know, for this functionality to be done in the right way, in, in, in sort of the, you know, the best possible way. Yes, I think that would be great. I mean, again, as a parent, I see how much interaction my children have with technology, and I want that interaction, I want it to be purposeful on mm-hmm. our part and the kids' part, but I also want it to be interaction with companies that are taking the fact that they're interacting with children seriously and responsibly mm-hmm. and being careful about what they're serving to the children and what they are collecting from the children right. and and how that um, what effects that that has more broadly. Um, last sort of question and topic, I, I'd like to go into um, YouTube. Um, I mean, that was obviously a, a milestone settlement last year. Um, I, I think it, it seemed that explaining digital privacy law to a lot of YouTube content creators was definitely a tricky thing to do. Right? Yes. I think on the flip side, there ended up being, I don't think anyone has calculated this, but it must have been sort of the equivalent of tens of millions of dollars in earned sort of marketing where, where creators were actually making videos about COPPA. And I think it sort of actually became quite mainstreamed off, off the back of that. Um, like I suppose going back and, and, and maybe like thinking about the future as well, is there sort of a better way to communicate those settlements to, to, to the end creators, you, you know, who are, who are not directly party to them, but because they, they use YouTube or another platform? Sure. Well, let's let me break it down. I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar with the framework of what we're talking about. But just to be clear, there are a couple of different issues that have woven to, that have gotten woven together in the narrative. So I want to draw them out. The FTC settled a case with YouTube this year in which we alleged that they were violating COPPA by collecting uh, persistent identifiers on kid-directed content channels and videos in order to serve targeted advertising and also some other functionality on that content. And as part of the settlement, they agreed to stop um, doing that, which is generally an agreement that companies make when they've been found to violate the law. And specifically, they agreed to implement a structure where content creators would have to designate 
whether their content was kid-directed or not kid-directed. And if they designated it as kid-directed, then features that were dependent on persistent identifiers, such as targeted advertising, would be turned off of that content. Um, I think that... And so that that settlement was announced in September. Um, I actually voted against the settlement in part because I thought it didn't put enough burden on YouTube itself mm. to make sure that 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 content designations were correct. I thought they, I think there's a lot of incentive for content creators to misdesignate their content, mm -hmm. and I wanted to make sure that YouTube bore some of the responsibility to make sure that those designations were correct. Um, rather than using them as a way to avoid um, any assertions that they had knowledge about the content. Right. But um, the that was rolled out, and around the same time, the FTC announced that we were doing a COPPA rule review. Mm. How the terms of the settlement and the changes to the YouTube features got communicated to the content creators on YouTube clearly was a problem because mm. there was an enormous amount of confusion mm. among content creators, most of whom directed a fair amount of ire at the FTC and thought that what was happening was our rule review was going to change the rules and make COPPA apply to them when it hadn't mm -hmm. applied to them. Mm -hmm. COPPA always applied to them. COPPA applies to everybody. Uh, the changes were not the result of a rule review. The changes were the, the result of a settlement. Um, and I have to say, I was frustrated with the fact that the company making the changes that affected the content creators on which their platforms were built didn't more clearly communicate to them why the changes were being made, mm. what that Google had agreed to the terms of the settlement mm -hmm. and had made the decision to make these changes, mm. that they were not connected to the rule review. And I've read some cynical analysis that, in fact, YouTube was ginning up the anger in order to flood comments into the rule review uh, to create some changes they thought would be more favorable in the rule, which I don't think plays out the way mm -hmm. if that cynical narrative is correct, they might have intended. Mm. Um, so so I think that that was frustrating. I also mm. think I have some concern about um, changes that were made as part of that whole process that actually had nothing to do with the settlement or the rule review but might be attributed to it. So, right, right. so again, I go back to my great power, great responsibility mm. point from earlier. I think the platform that gets the benefit of hosting all of these content creators and the revenue that they generate, mm. like to be mm. clear, it's not mm. a charitable endeavor, has a responsibility to communicate clearly mm. to its content creators what mm. it's doing and why it's doing. Mm -hmm. um, and to be clear also that we were not changing the law. There was no change in the law. There were no change in the rules. The FTC showed, the complaint shows that YouTube had substantial actual knowledge that many of these channels were directing content at children in order to monetize targeted advertising towards children. Mm. That is consistent with the terms mm. of COPPA and the rule from the beginning. So, um, or from the from the most recent. Yeah. Yeah. Rule, 2012 rule implementation. One of the things, I, I spoke to a lot of creators who were involved in all of that, and, and I know um, some of them, um, I, I know Dan TDM in particular said this, 
you know, they reached out to the FTC and they were able to have conversations with you and some of your colleagues. And I was amazed that that you guys were able to make yourselves accessible for that. You know, well, I, I thought that was tremendous. Well, I think it is really important. I mean, yeah. I think one of the reasons I like to do podcasts like this and I like to talk to people is I think we have an obligation to be as transparent and as accessible as possible. I mean, we're only five commissioners. Right. We're only like a thousand person agency. Only about less than 100 people work on privacy issues. Right. So right. we... we Relative to the size of the markets, we are not in, we don't have infinite capacity. Mm. But I do think we should be doing everything we can mm. to clearly communicate things. And one of the areas where I think the agency does have a lot of responsibility that we are trying to meet is thinking about and communicating what the law defines as child directed mm. and how we will look at what is child directed. Because I am sympathetic to the content creators' arguments that if they don't have a, a channel that they think of as child directed. Will we think of it as child-directed? And right. how do they know? Right. And how right. do they make that determination? Right. It isn't a wholly objective determination. I mean, mm. we try to be as objective as possible, but you have to look at very fact-specific features. And right. we want to be on the same page as content creators about that. We right. know they want to, um, for the most part, do the right thing and follow the law, and we want to help them. So there have been Hmm. updated blog posts, updated guidance, and hmm. the agency's done that. And like I said, all of the commissioners, I think, have really engaged on this issue. And I valued hearing from YouTubers about what was confusing and what was challenging mm -hmm. and what was problematic. And sometimes there was a lot of misinformation in what they said. Right. But right. that's helpful for me, too, to sure. know what sure. they're hearing that's wrong yeah. and think about how we can correct it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you considered setting up your own channel? Uh, no. <laughs> I, audio only for me. <laughs> um, very, very last question. We have um, children's digital privacy laws that are being considered or passed around the world at the, uh, at the moment. You know, this is a topic, as, as we mentioned at the start, that is absolutely sort of in the mainstream now. You know, we have the COPPA um, review that is that is going on. Um, how do you feel about the future of, of the kids' digital media ecosystem? Well, I feel more optimistic about it, given that there's a lot of attention being paid to it, than I did a few years ago when I worried that it was something where some dedicated FTC staff and advocates and, you know, a small sector of uh, responsible industry players were toiling in obscurity to work right. on these issues. I think <laughs> right. it's really important. The mm. spotlight is helpful, mm. um, and I'm hopeful and try to be optimistic that it will move us in a positive direction. But I do think it is incumbent upon everyone who has an interest in the system to act sooner rather than later. Because mm. as I said at the very beginning of our conversation, when practices get entrenched, problematic practices get entrenched, it's much harder to right the ship and, right. and change where things are going. So I would rather we as enforcers, industry, developers, advocates, stay ahead of the curve and be thinking about not just what are the problems that we're seeing today, but where are the markets going and where is the technology going and what are we going to see tomorrow? My, I will end with an anecdote that my, um, my five-year-old daughter who's in kindergarten was explaining to a friend of my husband's yesterday uh, how kindergarten works. And the person asked if they had a blackboard, like the teacher wrote things mm. on the blackboard. She explained, no, we have a Promethean board <laughs> in our classroom she doesn't know what a blackboard is because right. they have a digital blackboard that is super cool and allows all kinds of amazing interactions mm. in the classroom and engagement. And I've seen it in, in place, but I wouldn't have guessed 10 years ago right. that my children would live in a world without blackboards. And mm. so 
uh, thinking about where things are going and how kids are actually experiencing technology and will be experiencing technology mm. as the world moves forward is really important. Fantastic. Commissioner Rebecca Slaughter, thank you so much for joining us on Kid Tech today. Thanks for having me, Dylan. I really appreciated being here.